I'm Jessica Fritz Aguirre. This is Sticky Beak, Season 2, Episode 10, entitled All the Rockies. This is the first chapter in a trilogy, featuring a chronological exploration of the life and death of Sharon Vincent, her innermost thoughts about this case, and how each of her choices forever shaped the way it was seen. These will be the last three episodes of this season, as I take some time to gear up for my recently resurrected FOIA claim against the Wallingford Police Department. All three parts of the trilogy, including Good and Faithful Servant, the third and final episode of this trilogy, rounding out season two, is called From Hollyville to Whirlwind, are available right now for download, along with a whole host of extras on my Patreon page, www.patreon.com backslash stickybeak, if you pledge $5 a month. Please download, share, and review the show to get Doreen the exposure she needs. As always, you can email me at justicefordory at gmail.com. And don't forget to join the conversation over on the Sticky Beaks Facebook page. I am proud to say that this episode is sponsored by JPEX Financial in Glastonbury, Connecticut. Do you have a 401k and some savings for future retirement, but don't even know if it's enough to live off of? How much is enough? How often are you thinking about it? The team at JPEX Financial Group can help set your mind at ease. We specialize in creating strategies in the planning and managing of your financial, educational, and investment needs. We help clients pursue their investment goals with sound financial strategies. You deserve a personal, tailored plan. Lasting, meaningful, and open relationships are the foundation of our practice. You've worked hard for your money and should feel confident in your investment choices as you make decisions for your financial future. Your goals are our goals. We are dedicated to your needs and hopes for your future. Visit our website and give us a call at 860-430-5397. Securities offered through Raymond James Financial Services, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors, Inc. JPEX Financial Group, LLC is not a registered broker-dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services. JPEX Financial Group is located at 78 Eastern Boulevard, Glastonbury, Connecticut. Please visit their website at www.raymondjames.com backslash JPEX Financial. That's J-P-E-X Financial. Now on to the show. Walk, softly children, walk, softly children, walk, softly children. Back in my very first episode, entitled Love Doreen, I introduced you to one of my childhood boogeymen. Back in 1988, I was in the fifth grade, almost Doreen's exact age. Very shortly after she vanished forever, my friend revealed an ugly truth about her stepfather. The man her mother had married, who was a front row parishioner at my church and father to my friend's treasured little half-sister, had been hurting her for a very long time. Years later, that man would drink himself to death. But back then, he was very real, very frightening, and very present, showing up to school events with his little daughter in tow like nothing was wrong. As children unwise to the ways of the world, 
we all look to our friend's mother to leave her husband immediately and to throw a cape of safety and protection over her two daughters. But that didn't happen, and my friend went to live with her grandparents. Every day in class, and later at play rehearsal, I scanned her face for flashes of something I couldn't articulate then and can't now. But her smile remained big, her eyes bright. One day, after months apart from her daughter, my friend's mother entered the auditorium and milled about, casually watching rehearsal like nothing was wrong. My friend turned sheet white and struggled to breathe as I watched, helpless. The director rushed over with a paper bag he found God knows where and guided the girl to take big, calming breaths. As my friend wheezed and sobbed, her mother remained cold, impassive, rooted to the spot while her daughter crumbled. To this day, my mother remembers asking the woman, how could you stay with him? How could you do that to your own daughter? The woman's response was simple. She'd had to raise my friend alone, she said, with no man to help her. And she had a new baby now. My friend's stepfather might not be perfect, she admitted, but she would rather die than be alone. Andrea Bauman's boogeyman was her adoptive father, Dennis. Back before she disappeared on March 11, 1989, and was made famous in Soul Asylum's 1993 runaway train video, Andrea accused Dennis of sexually abusing her. When officials at her school, as well as the Department of Child and Family Services, didn't heed her cries for help, Andrea turned to her adoptive mother, Dennis's wife, Brenda. She told me one morning that Dad had molested her, Brenda would later tell authorities, and I looked at her and told her, that's a lie, and you know it. Brenda had always stuck up for her husband. In 1980, when Dennis was convicted of assault with intent to rape after trying to force a girl into the woods at gunpoint, the judge determined he likely posed a danger to women if he went free. But Brenda stood by him, offering up her home and her heart after he had served the minimum sentence. In 1998, Brenda was there for her husband again, writing the court a letter of support when Dennis pled guilty to breaking into another woman's trailer, where he had stashed a duffel bag with the victim's stolen lingerie, a mask, and a shotgun. In 2013, Brenda Bauman attended a conference on missing people with her daughter Vanessa, who had been 15 months old when her half-sister Andrea disappeared. In an article entitled The Girl in the Picture from Atavist Magazine, my main source on the Bowman case, Neil Capello detailed Andrea's almost desperate need to protect her little sister. Andrea, he wrote, went from being an only child to more than a big sister. She was the third parent to the chubby, red-headed baby. While other kids her age went to after-school clubs and Friday night football games, Andrea stayed home changing diapers and cleaning bottles. She kept a photo of her sister in a school folder where other teens might stash a magazine cutout or a Polaroid of their crush. When she wasn't with Vanessa, Andrea was anxious about the baby's well-being. At the conference, Brenda and Vanessa caught sight of Andrea's birth mother, Kathy Turkarian, and announced to the gathered group, We have a little situation here. Brenda rushed forth with a defense of Dennis, doubling down on the runaway story and offering stories of Andrea sightings. Kathy was incensed, yelling, Tell the truth about your husband. Vanessa, the half-sister and baby Andrea had so loved, attacked Kathy and had to be held back by a male attendee. Brenda, as always, remained calm. I haven't forgotten what he did, she said, 
but I do forgive him. I take my marriage vows very seriously. In February 2020, facing sentencing for the 1980 murder of Kathleen Doyle, Dennis laid his burden bare to Brenda. He'd killed Andrea, he told his wife, and not only buried her at the house, but dug her back up when the couple moved to a new place, hiding the remains there under a quick patch of concrete. I had been asking for weeks where she was, Brenda told the court. I think he owed me that. Dennis's directions to Brenda were cold, precise. Under the cement slab, he said, left-hand corner, front. So near, so far, right under your nose, Dennis told Brenda. Brenda was blunt. He didn't lie to me, this time. By now, you know where I'm going with this. This story will continue next, after a brief word from our sponsor. As we are in another year, living through a worldwide pandemic, it's important to protect yourself and your loved ones. You've worked hard for the things you have and for the people you share them with. But what if something tragic happened to you? While it's dark and difficult to think about the prospect you won't be around in the future, it will be a reality one day. If you have young children, who will be your children's guardian? If you've been divorced and remarried, will your children from your prior marriage be taken care of? Or if you want to donate to a certain charity after you pass, will those wishes be fulfilled? What will happen to your assets and your estate? If you already have a will or trust, you enjoy that peace of mind. If you don't have a will or trust, contact attorney Nia Serdosky at NCS Law, 860-966-9968. Attorney Serdosky is an estate planning attorney in Connecticut who can explain the differences and benefits of wills and trusts and give you the peace of mind that your affairs are in order and that your loved ones and your estate are provided for and safe. NCS Law, practicing peace of mind. 860-966-9968. Nia at ncsestateprobatelaw.com. For almost 34 years, there has been one major player whose silence and whose death have left a huge black hole in the story of what happened to Doreen Jane Vincent. In a 2001 interview with Jason Berry of the Meriden Wallingford Record Journal, Detective Tom Hanley's frustration with Sharon Vincent was palpable and familiar. While Sharon would give out some information, he noted, she would only go so far. Hanley thought Sharon was honoring some allegiance to Mark, who'd left her in the dust, in the middle of nowhere, with two little kids and perhaps a crime scene on her hands. She knows a lot more than she's willing to divulge. Period. The end, Hanley said. Even though she didn't live with him, she would say certain things, she would make certain admissions, but wouldn't cross that line. In the beginning, I hated Sharon's guts. When I first met with the Wallingford PD in March 2019, I brought along my husband and producer, Joe. Our butts were barely in our seats before then she fri fired off a burning question. Do you think Sharon was involved? Joe equivocated, but I did anything but. Yes, I answered immediately. She was involved. And whatever Mark did, she's just as culpable. But since then, it's gotten more difficult to answer that question. If Sharon had never given Donna directions to Whirlwind Hill, Donna might never have found the house, and the secret of Doreen's disappearance might have lasted a lot longer than three days. Later, Sharon would give Donna a warning, 
If you ever find Doreen, never let her go with Mark again. Ever. But between those bookends, between those glimpses of one mother trying to help another, is a murky mess. Listeners will recall that Sharon forewent countless opportunities to shed any light on what might have happened to her stepdaughter. So assuming Doreen was murdered, did she serve as Mark's partner in crime or an unwitting dupe? Paul, Sharon's son with Mark, is right about one thing. She might have been the only person who could ever fill in the blanks, and she's gone. When Sharon died on May 21, 2007, less than two weeks shy of her 46th birthday, she left behind no obituary. When I pointed out this maddening fact to Anthony DeMeo, now Deputy Chief of the Wallingford Police, he confessed that the PD had no idea how she died and he didn't seem that interested. What you should do if you want to learn about Sharon, he told me, is fly out to Ohio and interview her family and friends. At our first FOIA hearing in August 2019, counsel for the cops Janice Small lectured me, you have Sharon's statement. What more do you need? My answer, I'm trying to solve the case. I need everything. And the information I was getting wasn't good enough for me. So armed with Sharon's date of birth, I took matters into my own hands and called the medical examiner out in Ohio's Franklin County. I got a woman who was just about to go to lunch, but with a few keystrokes, she had found Sharon's autopsy report and fired it into my inbox. Sharon had been found in the early morning, unresponsive in her bed, when she failed to shut off her blaring alarm. Her death was natural, the immediate cause being hypertensive cardiovascular disease, with diabetes mellitus listed under other significant conditions. She had nothing stronger than caffeine in her system. I tried to get my hands on the police and paramedics reports, but right before I called, Franklin County, Ohio, had destroyed all its records from before 2008. The report told me Sharon's height, weight, and what she was wearing when she died, but offered no insight into my real questions about the secrets I was sure Sharon had died with. It seemed for a long time that we would have no answers. So I turned my attention to other things, like digging deep into Teen Challenge, and I definitely owe you an episode on that one. But then suddenly, about two weeks before Christmas, I was contacted by Sharon's family, and the dam broke. Sharon Lee Rockwell was born on June 1, 1961, the youngest of four children to Patricia Parati Rockwell and James Theodore Rockwell. Someday, I really am going to create a character map, like in Game of Thrones, to help listeners navigate this story. 
For now, though, you might want a pen and paper to chart Sharon's family tree. Sharon's father, Jim, was born in 1931 to Sharon's grandparents, Elizabeth Hinman Carl Rockwell and Stephen E. Rockwell. Elizabeth and Stephen, who were first cousins, had married in 1909, but not before Stephen had gotten his first choice, a woman whose parents would not let the two marry, pregnant. Known as Mama and Pop, the couple would give Jim a younger sister named Vera Maybell in 1933. Sharon's father Jim, and Rinky, as Vera was known, rounded out a brood of no less than 13 children, known collectively and individually as the Rockies. Preceding them were Rodney Carl, born in 1910, Viola Elizabeth, 1912, George Stephen, 1914, Mary Virginia, 1916, Martha Lois, 1917, John Greenville, 1919, Benjamin Pierce, 1920, Jesse David, 1922, Corona Vivian, 1923, William Edmund, 1925, and Halcyon Ernest, 1927. Sharon's Aunt Vera, or Rinky, wrote a memoir following her own life and the family's from 1933 to 1945, the year Vera turned 12. It's memorably entitled Cowshit and Strawberries, capturing her joy at spending a day stomping barefoot through fruit and cow patties on her family's property in Hollyville, Connecticut. The author's voice vacillates between adult Vera, looking in on her childhood self, and Rinky, experiencing the events firsthand through fresh child's eyes. It's an excellent book, one I might recommend that all of you read, except for the fact that copies are few and far between, so much so that I had to get my copy on interlibrary loan from the Serenius H. Booth Library in Newtown. All the Rockies I spoke to had their own copies, but they weren't willing to part with them. Jim, Sharon's father, features prominently in Vera's book. He's in photos building a snowman with his little sister and, later, in the Navy. Jim was only two years older than Vera, with their next two oldest siblings, Billy and Hal, or Halsey, already eight and six when Vera was born. With the older kids moved away, or in school, little Vera and Jimmy spent a lot of time working on what they called their town. It took up a sizable part of the dooryard, Vera wrote. Digging in the hard-packed dirt, we had an elaborate series of tunnels, roads, and buildings, which we fought about, cried over when they collapsed in a sudden downpour, then carefully reconstructed, until at some time we abandoned them altogether, in our attempt to dig to Australia or China. How many years did we work on that town? How many months, days, hours, or minutes did it take until we grew out of that and into something else? How many spoons did we ruin, bent over double by the hard earth? How many prisoners of war did we take out through our yard? Was Garibaldi really the Garibaldi in one of Pop's books? Or was he perhaps a prisoner of war? In any case, it was he who sang, All the Rockies in the Dell. They all know, but they won't tell. Little Jimmy and Rinky were free to roam, hunting dandelion greens, which their parents loved to eat, and frogs, a favorite of their father's. The two of them would often fish, with Rinky catching catfish and Jimmy rejecting them. Pop don't like them, he told his sister. Fit only for the cat. Throw it back. Rinky herself was a fan of blackberries, 
and would pluck them freely like her niece Sharon would later help herself to Jimmy Piscotti's raspberry bushes. If I close my eyes, Vera wrote, I can still see them, hanging in great black clumps almost too high to reach, protected by briars and always the last to come. Blackberries ended the berry season that had begun in high summer. The early morning dew was already cold on my bare feet as I went down behind the barn to pick them. I felt sorry for Peter Rabbit as I ate my blackberry and milk breakfast, rubbing at the long scratches on my arms that were the penalty you had to pay for the pleasure of purple milk. Poor Peter, who was a bad little bunny, only had chamomile tea. I had as many blackberries as I could pick. And then Vera writes again, All the Rockies in the Dell. They all know, but they won't tell. That was our motto. We were a tribe, and we had tribal rituals. Of all the people in her tribe, Rinky was closest to her mother, Sharon's grandmother, Elizabeth. This was especially so given that she was the baby and the only girl after Corona Vivian, later known as Tony or Vi, born 10 years earlier in 1923. Left alone when Jimmy started school, Rinky stayed with Mama, helping her with the wash or the cleaning. If any time was left, the two whiled away their hours baking or making doll clothes from Mama's scraps. Sometimes Rinky would bring her mother carefully selected stones from the brook nearby and extol her to look at her jewels. Mama admires the shiny gems, Vera wrote, and gives her an old crock to keep them safe. She puts them in one by one, examining each treasure as it clunks to the bottom. She leaves them in the jar on the doorstep, gets clean pants, and is ready to play on the swing. When next she looks at them, the sun neither glints nor sparkles on their surface. The gleam is gone. Her shiny rocks are only dull, ordinary, common garden stones, lusterless. She dumps them out and kicks the container, which breaks into smithereens as it falls down the steps. Then the spell was broken. I was in the world again. For Rinky, her father was more of a mystery and far less attainable. He would often take his Bible, gather his children, and read aloud in what Vera calls an occupation too seldom indulged. She writes, This time he started with a beautifully ringing first passage. Gradually, as he became more deeply immersed in the words and less in the dramatic effect, his voice quietened and the words hurried into each other until he was reading without thought or knowledge of our presence, sitting in front of him on the kitchen chairs. Suddenly, he would snap the book shut and sink to his knees, sobbing, Why, whenever I read it, do I pick something that makes me not believe? According to Vera, she and Jimmy's father displayed what she wrote, is seen by some as a Rockwell trait, an innate stubbornness combined with self-will, tenacity, and the certainty of being right, even when wrong. My father had such a bad temper, he once smashed a whole hand of bananas, a rare, rare treat, and ground them into the cellar floor because the kids had been pinching them behind his back. He, so some said, would argue black was white if it suited him. In the fall of 1939, Sharon's Aunt Rinky, who would turn out to be a reading prodigy, started school. Jimmy tried to sneak away without her, but with some money for penny candy, his mother bought his word that he would chaperone his little sister. Jimmy stayed close until the sweets had been purchased, but then he began to run ahead of Rinky taunting her by letting her try to catch him, only to dart out of reach. Vera writes, when once I did catch him, he hit me, 
knocked me down in the bushes, then ran all the way to school without me. I could hear the bell ringing and knew that although Mama had seen that we had started in good time, I was going to be late on my very first day. Rinky arrived at school sobbing, with blood running down her leg. Unable to speak, she couldn't tell the teachers who she was, and Jimmy refused to claim her. It was one of the other kids, Vera writes, who identified me as Rinky Rockwell. The teacher looked at her list and found my name. Oh yes, you must be Vera, she said. Sit down there. That is when I began to learn who Vera was supposed to be. Vera's brother Jim would grow up and marry Sharon's mother. Patricia Parati Rockwell would bear four children, Stephen in 1955, Richard in 1957, Elizabeth in 1958, and their baby girl, Sharon Lee, in 1961. Jim Rockwell died at 70 after a bout with Alzheimer's on July 13, 2013. His obituary tells us he served in Korea and worked for Sikorsky Aircraft for 36 years. As a deacon and longtime member of Danbury's First Congregational Church, he sang his hymns, quote, with exuberance, albeit to the dismay of those within earshot. Jim's obituary yielded four comments, including one from Nancy, who remembered Jim's big grin and his deep grumble of a laugh that would start slow and go forever. Beverly quoted scripture, There is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Let this be a time to mourn for the loss of a man who served his country and loved his family. Later will be a time to dance and remember Jim fondly. Someone named Little Bo wrote, He made a friend feel like family. He is loved and missed. As for Sharon's mother Patricia, there are no books written about her, and as with Sharon, I couldn't find an obituary online. Some members of Sharon's family had gotten in touch to tell me that Patty died after a botched hysterectomy. But then I got in touch with Liz, Sharon's sister, who filled in the tragic details. In June or July of 1969, Patty learned she was pregnant again. Patty's role as a mother to four and housewife, with Jim already working two jobs to make ends meet, ignited against the fear that the pregnancy could be twins, like Jim and Vera's father had been, and exacerbate Patty's diabetes. So four years before Roe v. Wade would legalize a woman's right to choose, Patty decided to have an abortion. But the doctor was drunk and accidentally cut into Patty's uterus, so he decided on the spot to give her a hysterectomy. An infection caught hold, and Sharon's mother, Patricia Parati Rockwell, died on August 8, 1969, just two months after her own father, Frank, nine days before her own 33rd birthday, and on the very eve of the Manson family murders of Sharon Tate, her house guests, and a teenage caretaker, heralding the unofficial end of both the Summer of Love and the 60s themselves. A yellowed copy of Patty's obituary, kept by her daughter Liz all these years with mother handwritten across the top, was sparse. It listed Patty as Mrs. James T. Rockwell, noted that she had died unexpectedly after a short illness, and listed her daughters as the Mrs. Elizabeth M. and Sharon L. Rockwell. Patty also left behind two brothers and a sister, Linda, who would forever resent Jim. Shortly after Patty passed, Linda took Liz out shopping for new school clothes. 
Linda parked the car and turned to face her niece, telling her that Jim had failed to do anything for his young wife, to get her treatment, or sue the doctor after she died. Jim wouldn't talk about it, Liz told me. He would just walk out of the room, but he made his resentment for Liz, who was the carbon copy of her mother, well known. Patty and Linda's mother, Mabel, would die the next year, and with both sets of grandparents gone, Jim's parents died in the 1940s. The children were mostly left to rule the roost when they weren't being minded by Linda and the occasional housekeeper. Also, four of them, right? So that's yeah, a lot. Four of them. Yeah, they would tell me stories about how they used to run around the house jumping on the furniture and blah, 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 because they were out of control. Sharon went on to Danbury High, making an impression as a girl looking to fill a void. While Sharon did look to religion to ease her mind, I was also able to confirm what I'd heard from at least one other source, that she looked to something else entirely. Because, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but I had heard that she was an addict um, at some point. Do you know what kind of drugs? No, I don't. I'm not sure if Sharon graduated, but records tell me that in 1980, at age 20, she married a man named Jeffrey, who was four years her junior. I couldn't find anything else on Jeffrey, who seemed to vanish into the wind, and her sister Liz claims that marriage never happened. It was around 1982 or 83 when Sharon made the acquaintance of one Mark Vincent. That fateful meeting took place at Sing Sing, New York's infamous maximum security prison, named for the native Wappinger word sink sink, meaning stone upon stone. Before New York abolished the death penalty in 1972, Sing Sing was home to 614 executions. A dozen or so years later, it was host to the prison outreach program from Sharon's church. I don't know what that courtship must have been like, but when Mark got out, Sharon was waiting for him. Now, had she been dating him for a while? Do you know anything about their relationship before they got married? No, not other. The only thing, I, I just have a vague recollection of Diane saying, oh, come over, Sharon's bringing her boyfriend. He's a, just, he just got out of prison or something to that effect, <laughs> yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> he burned down a bar. He robbed a payphone. That's my favorite one. <laughs> My, I'm like, really? You robbed a payphone? Are you serious? Probably on something. Okay, well, talk to me more about that if you don't mind, because what I've collected basically has said Mark was never, ever a drunk or an addict. Well, you know what? I can't, I can't 
say that I ever remember seeing him take anything. Actually, I don't even, we weren't really a drinking family, so I, I don't know if he drank or not. But he kind of like acted like he was, he was a tough street guy. So you kind of associated with him just because of that. Did Sharon ever reference like what kind of person he was in front of you? Sharon and Mark were married on June 9, 1984, almost four years to the day before Doreen would go missing. In the days leading up to this, Mark was strange. He insisted he'd been told to propose to Sharon by either an angel or a demon appearing at the end of his bed, and then called off his original wedding date because Doreen had come to live with him and Sharon. The ceremony took place in a tiny brown and white church in rural Middletown, New York, with the reception outside under the matching pavilion. Sharon was in a high-necked, long-sleeved, ruffled white shirt with a long blue skirt to her ankles. A white woman in a blue dress held her bouquet. A black man in a brown vest stood up for Mark, and the group was rounded out by a ring-bearer and a flower girl, not Doreen. Like most of the guests in the photos I have, these four players remain strangers to me. One of the wedding guests recalled that very few men were present, with women and small children comprising about 85% of the attendees. Photos show the pastor laying his hands on the couple's foreheads as they close their eyes. Someone who once knew Mark told me, The wedding was awful. It was just stupid. We all knew that it was a sham. All of this born-again Christian stuff with the two of them was just sickening. I even remember what I wore. And in one of the pictures from that day, which I probably tore up and threw away. I was trying to smile, and it just came out so fake and awful. The whole thing was just pathetic. Sharon's family remembered the wedding, too. One source called the pastor a wacko, going on and on about the Bible, drugs, and beating women. Do you remember that? Like, do you remember the wedding or anything like that? Where <laughs> do I remember the wedding? <laughs> Were you at the wedding? Yeah. Well, I have pictures. So I, I have pictures of that wedding. I have pictures of the whole shebang. And it's funny because you're the first person I talked to besides some of Mark's family that was there. Oh, see, I don't, I don't even, I didn't even meet Mark, any of Mark's family. Cause it was, I don't know. I didn't even know they were there. I wouldn't know. It was weird. We kind of just, it was just Diane and Rick and I, we all just kind of Mark's failure in that tiny little church to introduce his own family to his new brides tells me that Mark and Sharon's religion now reign supreme, that the strangers in the pictures, more so than Mark and Sharon's kin, would be their family now. But I was also struck with the realization that Mark had a thing for keeping family separate, just like he tried to do years earlier when he was married to Donna. On one of my more recent episodes, I played a clip of Donna's mother, Jane Murad, calling Mark's mother Lori cold and off the wall. That characterization garnered an email from someone who had been close to Lori. Those, my source wrote, are gross mischaracterizations of Lori. I don't even know where off the wall came from. There was nothing about Lori that was off the wall. 
This is upsetting. Perhaps Lori didn't like Jane Murad, and hence Jane thought she was cold. But Lori was loving and determined and patient as hell. If she weren't, she would never have given Mark chance after chance, year after year, to straighten himself out, to become a decent human being, to turn the trajectory of his life around. She hung in there and loved him way past the time he deserved any more of her love. And people loved her. People would seek her out at parties just to talk to her. Jane did not know Lori, yet that inaccurate characterization of her stands, and that is how listeners will think of her. To let that woman's skewed and inaccurate words be the sole descriptor of Lori and her personality is just, I have no words. Another slap in the face to a woman who had endured so much pain and heartbreak from her piece of shit son. To say that I'm disappointed would be an understatement. I just want to cry. Messages like these make me sit and think hard about how I do this work and how I tell this story. These people are not just characters. They are real people who lived and loved. I try to capture them faithfully, but sometimes I fall far short, and for that I'm sorry. Sharon Liz told me wanted nothing more in life than to just make a family with Mark, but he often left her alone with Paul, born in March 1985, nine months after his parents married, and Sarah, who followed in 1986. A boy growing up in the family's Bridgeport neighborhood, now a man haunted by the memory of Mark choking him for the sin of playing tag with Doreen, remember seeing Sharon out on her front steps. She seemed very pleasant, he said, and she would sometimes wave, but she never spoke. Doreen's maternal grandmother, Jane, had these thoughts. It's too bad because his ex-wife passed away. Sharon, she died. I often wonder why. Well, so I called the coroner and I got the report because we had thought maybe she had committed suicide because we thought she helped him. Uh-huh. But she was 45 and she died of hypertension, high blood pressure, and diabetes. I wonder why she had that. Can't imagine. She was a very, I'm surprised because she was a very docile person. Yep. She was not a type to get excited. She was very calm, very religious. Did you ever meet her? Yes, I did. What is well, she? I, I can tell you about her. She's a very pleasant person, but I don't know how those two got along. They're like night and day. No matter the weather, the Bridgeport source told me, Sharon was always dressed head to toe in drab fabric, as Mark demanded. Sharon hated those clothes, her sister Liz told me. My sister, she said, had her own mind and her own way of living. Liz had disliked Mark from the very beginning. He reminded her of her own brother, Steve, for reasons she didn't want to go into. But Mark was mean, Liz told me. He abused Sharon both physically and emotionally. He'd berate her and go ballistic over the stupidest little things and would lash out at Sharon's father, Jim, when he tried to protect his daughter. And it wasn't just Sharon that Mark went after. Here's another family member of Sharon's. The one memory I have that haunts me to this day is when Paul was a baby, maybe like three months old. We were at the grandfather's house. It was the Rockwell family. And Sharon was there with the baby and Mark was there. And we were all there. We were playing cards and doing typical, uh, must have been a holiday or something. And Paul was in the next room in the crib and he started crying. And Sharon came out, and she goes, oh, I don't know why he's crying. I fed him, I changed him, I burped him. Mark got up, and he says, I'll take care of this. 
and he goes into the next room and you hear whack, oh. whack, and he slapped him on the butt real hard and came back out and I was like mortified. Mm-hmm. And it, it just really scared me that he would do something like that. And he says, you got to start teaching these children young that they can't get away with that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I remember Diane, Diane Russell and I looked at each other and we were like, our eyes open and like, we didn't know what to say or what to do. And from that point on, I was really scared of him and I tried to keep distance. As for Doreen, it was hard for Sharon's family to get to know her. And for that, Mark seemed to take a lot of the blame. Jimmy Farnham's wife, Laura West, told me there was always something quiet between the two of them that felt like it was going to explode. And another source told me she would slink out of the room like a cat whenever he walked in. To Sharon's sister, Liz, Doreen seemed very sweet and shy, but she never opened up, and it was hard to connect with her. One member of Sharon's family met Doreen only once at a Rockwell family Christmas party. She would scowl at him, but she kept her mouth shut. And uh, he would give her, you know, dirty looks, like he would have behaved and that kind of thing. Mark was there with Sharon, and we all had our little ones over there. Yeah. They were all playing. And Doreen and Mark, you could tell a lot of tension between them, a lot of tension. She kind of sat in her chair by herself, and but she was very sweet to me. Mm-hmm. I gave her a Christmas gift. It was, I don't know, something silly, like a, what an 11-year-old, 12-year-old girl might like. I think it was like bath beads or, or powder or something, like, you know, curly girl. And she was so thankful, so sweet. And I just, you know, I kind of like was, took a liking to her right away because mm-hmm. she was very polite and sweet. And then it wasn't long after that that this all happened, and I was just devastated. The year was 1987. It would be the last Christmas anyone would see Doreen alive. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Find your freedom, little children.